So if they don't want to be here and they can't stop this thing that that is rolling on tracks that they can't control, why do I want to be here? Like, am I just going to move four seats over and essentially have the same exact job, be here at the same exact time, still not be able to say no to this crazy 730 a.m. meeting and then start drifting off into sleep? I'm like, I don't think I want this. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risk right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist I've made specifically for you. Based on the lessons I have learned from all the guests I've had on the show, fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest Steve Factor. Steve, are you ready to rock? Oh, I am so ready. I've never been more ready. I, I, <laughs> I can feel it. I really can feel your energy. Right <laughs> Lubed and ready in, yep. in the least sexual way possible. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so like our bicycles when we were kids. Lubed That's ready, right. Ready exactly. Exactly like a bicycle. <laughs> so let me tell the audience a bit about you. And then I think we're going to have some interesting discussion. Steve Factor is a former Fortune 100 executive turned entrepreneur, futurist author of Econovation and podcaster. As managing director of Idea Factory Innovation, he helps tech, financial services, and consumer goods clients see and build the future. Steve is a LinkedIn influencer with over 750,000 followers and has been featured in Forbes Magazine, Harvard Business Review, and the Wall Street Journal, just to name a few. He's a popular keynote speaker at major events and numerous corporations. The McFuture podcast features Steve's provocative predictions and prescriptions, as well as guests like Larry King, comedian Jim Jeffries, Governor Jesse Ventura, noble economist Joseph Stiglitz, former ACLU president Nadine Strawson, and megachurch pastor A.R. Bernard, and many, many, many more. Previously, Steve launched multiple $150 million loyalty payments and e-commerce products and services as head of the American Express Chairman's Innovation Fund, SVP, at City Ventures, VP of Strategy and Innovation at MasterCard, and Management Consultant at Anderson. Well, Steve, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. <laughs> Where do I start? I mean, you you did a great job of of giving sort of the the bullet points, but I guess you know, <laughs> do you want me to jump right into the the I, story? I want to I want to you know ask you a question because we were talking before, and I think that it's a really important thing. You talked to me before we turn on the recorder about not really getting disrupted by all the news and everything that's coming at you, but somehow figuring out a way that you have figured out to step back and see a bigger picture. And I think right now we're in an environment where it's so easy to get sucked into just looking at right in front of our face. And maybe you could just tell the audience kind of what you do and maybe give us some pointers. I'd like to be more like you, more strategic, more future looking. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's key to that, and, you know, I, I guess I'm no hero when it comes to this, but I take a lot of the bullets so my clients don't have to. And what I mean by that is I am sucking in way too much information. And the, the three 
areas that I focus on are economics, innovation, and culture. And I think those are the three things that drive the future. And experts in any one of those fields, as brilliant as they may be, also have a sense of myopia. And, you know, especially in the cultural realm where, you know, the, the information just flies at you in at insane speeds. And so the sheer volume that exists right now makes it very hard to pick out the trends, to pick out what matters from what doesn't matter. So I think the, the first thing that I do is not react immediately because it's, it's hard not to, right? Because something just triggers whatever it is, you know, and the way the headlines are written, the way that clickbait works, the way that, you know, CNN and Fox and all these guys try to get your attention is they try to, you know, get you all worked up. So the, the trick is to be dead inside and not react in that way. Not to say that I'm dead inside, although, you know, I'm sure medical professionals might say otherwise, but the idea is to really hold back before you judge, you know, like a good example is, you know, whenever a video goes viral and those videos sometimes are cut up to manipulate you into a certain reaction and to a certain response. And that can feed into whatever narrative you have already bought into. And so that is a very dangerous thing. And we all have that impulse. So not allowing someone to or something to press that button is a muscle that we need to develop. And it's one that I've developed and, you know, and there are people who, who have that, but it's not natural because, you know, when you're presented with stimulus that evokes an emotion, you react. And I think what those reactions collectively are creating online mobs, those reactions are creating adverse reactions in, in, in politics and, and, and media. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is trying to find patterns and piecing things together. As I was mentioning to you, my Twitter feed is not just, you know, yeah, there's a bunch of individual tweets. Some are stupid, some are insightful, and a lot of, uh, a lot of them are somewhere in between. But the more insightful ones are part of a theme. So you'll see a lot of very long multi-year threads because I'm always adding insights to these storylines. And sometimes those insights invalidate something I believed earlier. So I just started a thread called I was wrong with that hashtag because I want to model this behavior, which is the ability to evolve. And that's something no one's getting any credit for or no one's even trying to do because, you know, like when you'll find something someone said when they were, you know, 19 years old, and now they're trying to, you know, get a public sector job or whatever, or they have a job and someone wants to cancel them. And you're like, they said it when they were 19. And so I think it's important for us to model this evolution that we all go through and we all should admire because, and not to say that I'm some, you know, exalted figure that needs to be admired, but I'm trying to do my small part in acknowledging, Hey, you know, and, and one example is I didn't know anything about Malcolm X, for example, you know, I, we all go through school and, you know, we learn that one guy's by any means necessary and the other guy's the peaceful guy. So everyone chooses the peaceful guy and I'm okay. And then, you know, when you educate yourself and you read some of his writings and you watch some of his videos, you realize how much depth there is to to this person you're like oh wait a minute he, he had something going on that that i didn't quite understand or look into <laughs> so so that's a, an opportunity for me to say not so much that i was wrong because i wasn't even educated so how would i even know that i was wrong well, whatever opinion i had was a malformed relic of bad education system 
Mm. So I think that creating those patterns and really taking the time to think through what something means in the larger context. And, you know, and I look at these three fields and there's probably other things that I don't look at, like, you know, healthcare, that are things that are going on. There's very specific niches. But I think if you follow the money, you follow the culture and you follow the technology, you will lead yourself to the right answers a lot of the time. And you do it over time and not instantaneously in knee-jerk responses. Well, that's a a lot to unpack. I mean, one of the things that I would say is that sometimes I do the first, you know, the first thing we talked about is handling the information that comes at us. One way of doing that is to shut it off. So I do shut it off. And in the morning when I start work, and I do not get involved in that. In fact, I don't even check email except to do a first glance. But then for the rest of the morning, I don't do email. And then the other thing is that I also now come to think that my brain is actually, it's everything. Everything comes from my brain. And therefore, I need to protect what is being bombarded at my brain. Every single thing that is coming at me is someone else, individually or a company or a government or a politician, putting something that they want in my brain. And I have to think, I I have to protect that much more vigorously, I feel like these days. So that's the first thing that you, know, you made me think about. The other thing is uh, that you were talking about changing the way you think about things. And the reality is it, it happens over time. Sometimes we don't even know. Yeah. A good example is my friend from outside of Cleveland, where I grew up in a little town called Hudson, Ohio. He came to see me you know, many years later here in Thailand. And we were talking about drugs and getting penalties for drugs in Thailand are extreme. You know, you're talking about life. You're talking about, you know, practically execution. And I was so against it. And we talked about it. And he's like, I can't believe I'm hearing this from you because when we were young, you were all about get tough on drugs, get tough war on war on drugs. And I was, and I was like, wow, wow. I didn't even realize how much my mind had changed. And the, the third thing you mentioned, Malcolm X is the autobiography of Malcolm X is one of my top 10 books of all times. And I highly recommend it to any of the listeners. One of the things I found is obviously he had a lot of you know, very powerful things to say. But what I, there's two things I took away from from him. And that was number one, he had an upside down way of thinking, which may actually be right side up. You know, once someone thinks different than you and you bring that into your world, it makes you question yeah. what, what you believe. You know, and he talked about the white man is the devil and black is beautiful and white is evil, you know, and, and just some of those stuff. But there was a lot of stuff that he talked about that just kind of really caught me off guard and made me really respect. Well, also self-reliance is a big theme. And he is like, don't wait for others to rescue you. You have to build your own thing and your own dream, and you have to do it despite all of these people. And your helpers sometimes are the worst, your worst enemies. Exactly. And, uh, I can go back to 1987. I went to a mail order place and I ordered all of his speeches in cassette format. And I got a big thing. And I listened to all of those speeches many times in my car and really, really, really appreciate what he talked about. But the other thing is that he also was a man that had the strength to question something that he that came to him with the nation of Islam and with the honorable Elijah Muhammad having kind of disputes and problems that were going on there. And then he took it upon himself to go and investigate and talk to some of the people involved 
and then make his own judgment. And he split from the nation of Islam. Yeah. And that I thought was very, very intellectually powerful thing to do, because I think that one of the hardest things, it takes so much emotional and mental energy to change your opinion on something or reject something. So I just really respected him for those two things that he turned a lot of my thinking on things upside down. He kind of broke the frame that I was looking at things. And the second is he was a man that was willing to go and look at something and then change his mind on it. Interesting. Yeah. We don't live in a society that takes very kindly to people who question assumptions and systems and the systems that are in place that benefit power and incumbent power. And so so whenever someone does that, they have to prepare for a very hard life, potentially, or maybe a short one, unfortunately. Exactly. Exactly. Well, wow, that was a lot of stuff. We went really deep. (laughs) Yeah, fantastic. Good stuff. And we got a good book recommendation, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. I highly recommend it. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, please tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Yeah. So my worst investment ever is really a non-investment. And it's a non-investment, or maybe uh, more accurately, a delayed investment in myself. And it's something that I thought would be a little bit different to discuss because, you know, everyone always talks about investing yourself or, you know, self-empowerment and all that stuff. But there's a very real sort of fear that we all have in really just putting it all out there in terms of what we want to do and what we want to be, especially if that thing is very difficult. And that's kind of the situation I found myself in. And maybe I can contextualize it for you. I don't know. Do you want me to jump in? Yeah. 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 So, you know, I'm an immigrant. I came from the Soviet Union. I was, uh, you know, six years old when, when we came here. And, you know, I was always very creative. I was always very disruptive (laughs) because, hey, listen, you know, I had a lot of ideas that didn't fit neatly in those boxes. And I went to a yeshiva, you know, a Jewish school, and I would always fight with my rabbis because I would always question what they were teaching. You know, the rabbi would go, Noah lived for 950 years or something like that. And then I'd be like, (laughs) I mean, if you look pretty bad after 80, how bad are you going to look after 980 or whatever? And boom, I was out of class. So I basically had my own seat by the Hebrew principal's office. And then, you know, you go to the second half of the day where all the secular classes were. And I was the best student. You know, I was still kind of disruptive and a bit bit of a, a handful, but I was, I did really well. So I was living this crazy chaotic double life where I'm punished for half the day and watch all my friends go to recess. And then for the second half of the day, I'm answering all the questions and, you know, finishing the test first. So it, it, it was very schizophrenic, but throughout all of that, the one thing that stayed constant is creativity. I would always write. So I wrote constantly ever since I was a little kid. And, and some of this stuff was so creative and so funny. Like I still keep it. I, I, I had like a, like a plastic shopping bag, very classy. We were immigrants. I mean, you know, <laughs> my parents weren't going to buy me a nice box or anything. So I kept in this cheap, crappy plastic bag, everything I'd ever written from maybe second grade or third grade. And I kept it in my grandmother's house in her closet. And my parents 
could not be more oblivious to this. They could not care less. Like it didn't even, cause they're immigrants. It did not even register on their radar. It was like the stealth bomber. My, anything I wanted to do or was interested in could just fly in and just drop bombs and they would never notice. So to them, you know, a good life or a successful life is a steady professional career where you're, you know, you're, you grow up to be a nice boy who, uh, you know, who does well in school and then goes out and, you know, has a family and a career and a job that, that everyone could be proud of. And that's kind of the direction I went in. That's the direction they pushed me in. And the whole time I had this sort of angst and no real outlet for creativity because when I was coming up, there wasn't really internet. Like there was, you know, email and then, you know, the Graphical web started to appear slowly, but everything still looked crappy and there really wasn't even blogging or anything along those lines. So, you know, your options were limited. One of the quite one question I just wanted to ask is like, what would you have done? You know, you talked about not investing in yourself or not. Yeah. Like, what do you think you would have pursued if you had been able to do it or had the guts to do it or whatever that was that? Yeah. My dream was to be Howard Stern. That was my dream. I grew up listening to him as a little kid and he just made me laugh. It was, I, you know, listen, I, I had a very simple mind and he had a lot of dick jokes and, and that worked for me. And so to me, just the, the excitement of live radio blew me away because it just, it, there was a danger to it. Anything could happen. Anything could be said. We don't know who's coming into the studio next. You know, what's this person going to do? Is, is Howard going to get fired for saying whatever? Is, are his bosses going to come down? So it was just a really exciting environment. I just wanted to be part of it. I remember I even bought a special Walkman that allowed you to record. And I waited. I invented this thing in my head years ago. I just had nowhere to go with this idea where you could record off the radio. Because, you know, some of them had recorders but didn't yeah. record the radio. Anyway, so I found a way to do this. And I would listen, you know, on my way to school, on my way back, I'd listen to the recordings. So that was the dream. And I actually got into Boston University, which is where Howard went, but we didn't have enough money to send me away and to pay for, for school there. And they didn't give me much of a scholarship. So I ended up getting an academic scholarship at NYU. So I ended up going to NYU instead because, you know, that program in Boston was just, you know, we couldn't afford it. Mm, mm. So how would you describe what you learned from, you know, this journey of yours? Well, that was only part of the journey, but mm. that early stage of it really means that <laughs> you, you have to fight harder if you feel that something is innate inside of you and you can't really allow even your parents to, to guide you elsewhere. You know, you have to really fight for that personal narrative that fits who you are. Mm. And we go from in our childhood from having big dreams, like I want to be on Howard Stern or whatever. And then many people transform to conform and the dreams are lost. Yeah. And I wonder, is there a point in time in your life that you can say that you wanted that dream, you couldn't get it, but then eventually you started really pursuing, for instance, when you set up your own business, as an example, can you think about a key point where you really started to say, I'm investing in this, I'm following this direction with everything I got? Yeah. You know, in the early stages of, of a professional career, really any professional career, and especially mine, which was consulting, you have so much variety. You're such a blank slate that you're always learning. You're always busy. You're always around other people who are in the same situation. So you have this excitement that 
obscures your dreams in some ways, right? Because the activity and, and the fun and the learning sort of stands as a proxy for the things you want, or maybe it's an input to the things or a refinement to the things you actually want. So in those early stages, I didn't even notice it, you know, but then as you progress and things become more stodgy, more conservative, more, you know, you start moving up the ladder because you're doing well, because you're, you know, you're smart, you're able to perform it at these jobs and people keep moving you up. The expectations get higher and the roles start to change. You're no longer just that creative person and doing that thing, the innovation and developing new products and services that you were great at that got you to that point. But now you're a manager and a manager is more of a cookie cutter structure, right? So an increasing part is managing teams, is leadership, is inspiration, is all the administrative stuff. So now, you know, your life starts to change and then you feel a little bit more and more confined. And I think it all came to a head in this one moment for me. I was sitting in a boardroom with the CEO of my company. I, I won't name the companies just to you know protect the innocent, but I was sitting with the CEO, the CFO, and a bunch of you know very senior people. And everyone was going around presenting their stuff. I was there to present the innovation update. And as someone was presenting, I looked over at the CEO. Now, mind, mind you, this was a 7.30 a.m. meeting. I looked over and both the CEO and the CFO are dozing off. <laughs> so they're, you know, they're just drifting. And I looked over and I had this revelation, not that I didn't have these thoughts before, but it crystallized it in such a beautiful way where I was like, these are the top of the top in this organization. They don't want to be here. So if they don't want to be here and they can't stop this thing that, that is rolling on tracks that they can't control, why do I want to be here? Like, am I just going to move four seats over and essentially have the same exact job, be here at the same exact time, still not be able to say no to this crazy 7.30 a.m. meeting and then start drifting off into sleep? I'm like, I don't think I want this, mm. you know, because what, what am I aspiring to, to move four seats over? Yeah. With more money, with more, whatever, but, but it just sort of crystallized that whole thing for me. I'm like, these are the top of the organization paid millions of dollars and they cannot sit awake through this thing. <laughs> Maybe I'll share a couple of things that I take away. You know, one of the things that reminds me when I first started my career at Pepsi, I got hired out of university at Cal State Long Beach and I went to work in the, I had studied finance, but I went to work in the factory. So I worked in our different factories in Los Angeles. But what I really remember about that time was that there came, I mean, I, I could work within that environment and I did really well, but there just came a time where, and I remember I had a girlfriend at the time and one morning I woke up and got ready and, and all that. And she was staying with me and we were living together. And as I was walking out of the house, she handed me this, paper bag of a sandwich and it was just something about the symbolism of that like it's over that's it you're a company <laughs> guy that's it it's right. just go to work come home that's it and I was like at that moment I was like okay that's it and I didn't say anything but I know my mind flipped and eventually I decided I'm moving to Thailand because I'm just gonna you know I'd already kind of come here I thought it was pretty cool and then I thought I don't I don't care even though I went to work for Pepsi in Thailand and did the exact same job, at least I would be like bombarded with something new every day, which, you know, even today, after 30 years, I am. So I know that for the listeners out there, I just want to encourage you 
to think about the things that you're dreaming, the things that are holding you back, and look for those pivotal moments where you can say, all right, that's enough. I'm ready to move to the next level. Because I think, you know, Steve couldn't move to that next level if he didn't go through that period of learning in the beginning where he was learning everything. And, you know, same for me, I needed to see what it was like in the corporate environment to realize that I, I don't want that. And a lot of people have asked me, you know, you could have been, you know, you could have been a president of Pepsi. You could have gone to Wall Street. And, yeah. And, and, you know, you could have been all that. And I said, yeah, but I had a freaking happy life. And when people asked me in Thailand, they would always ask me, you know, how often do you go home? And I say, I always say this. I say the same thing every night. Yeah. And yeah. They, they're like, well, I don't know. I mean, how often do you go back to America? I think, no, I'm happy with what I'm doing. And so I don't even think about it. So, you know, yeah. I just think it's a, it's a wake up call for all of us to, to keep looking. It is. And moments. what you're saying rings so true because the happiness is very easy to define for other people. Right. So, so you can project, like you can look at an Instagram account and look at all these people at this great vacation, look at the fun they're having. Is so it you're they're projecting an image out at you and you're projecting an idyllic life out for them. You don't know what the truth is. And just like when you give a job title to a person, it's like, Oh man, this person's making a fortune or they're su- you know, they're super successful, they're super happy. The successful and the happy are mutually exclusive things, you know. So you could be very successful in the eyes of the world and not be very happy in your own eyes. And that's really what matters is what's in your own eyes, in your own heart. You know, it, it brings me back to a saying, you know, one of the struggles I had when I was young was that I was in a rehab and uh, trying to get off drugs and alcohol and all that. And my counselor, Mike Matoni, who was actually one guy, one of the people I've interviewed here, Mike used to say, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. Right. And I think that that summarizes what you're saying. You know, Robin Williams is a great example. I mean, who else, who could look at that guy and not say he's at the pinnacle? The guy ought to be the happiest guy in the world. But we don't know what's going on inside. And so, you know, that's a great thing to remind ourselves is don't put people up on a pedestal because like you say, some guys are up at the top, men and women, and they're just there. They're just, they're on a hamster wheel. And yeah, they don't yeah. give that appearance. They look really tight and they speak really well, but inside they're dying and they'll never tell you. So don't well, compare your inside. Not only are they dying, outside. not only are they dying, but they're also subjected to mechanisms that keep them in place. Because once you start taking on, you know, loans for a house, once you start, you know, have kids and you have to pay the tuition bills, once you have Medical. a certain lifestyle. Yeah, you are locked in, you're trapped. And so that's one of the lessons I learned. And you know, this is one of the things that, this is how I could tell that I always knew I needed to do something else because I always lived below my means. I always knew that this was a trap. And by saying this, this pattern of expectations that we have for how people's lives should go. And so until I was able to honestly look in the mirror and say, this is what I want to be. This is who I want to be. These are the things I want to spend my time on. And until I could do that, and at the time in corporate, I couldn't, I could not justify living up to a certain level of lavishness that I probably could afford and that mm. others were buying, but I just couldn't allow myself to have. So I kept saving 
to emancipate myself. So I was buying my freedom, you know, essentially. <laughs> and so the whole time I didn't even realize it. And then it was all subconscious, you know, my interest in investing, my interest in saving, my, you know, sort of denying myself some of the niceties of life that other friends were, were buying. It all makes sense in retrospect. But at the time, you know, I, I just thought I was, you know, a cheapskate, you know, yeah. not cheap, but, but very, very planned in terms of how I lived my life. Well, it's, it's nothing wrong with taking pride in living deeply below your means, you know, and that's a great thing. I talk about that in one of my books, how to start building your wealth, investing in the stock market. I'd say, you know, you're never going to, you're never going to build any large amount of wealth if you don't live below your means. So it also, the other thing that I just, there's so many things that come across from it, but maybe, maybe what I'll do is ask you this question. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? How do they break free? If I had to pick one, I would say that distinguish between what's easy and what's satisfying. So a lot of people mistake the two. You know, I remember when I was being recruited for all of these different companies, I went with the company that wanted me most. I forgot that I should also be asking the same of them. Do I want to be here? You know, and, and so, you know, you treat the interview process as a one-way street. It's like, oh, here's all the information you need from me. Anything else? Please hire me. Please, please, please. You know, but, but that's not really the right way to think of things. You also have to think of what are they giving to me? Not only the money and the tangible things, but the intangible things. And those intangible things is really, you know, and, and I'm cheating a little bit here, but it's sort of a know thyself issue. And the quicker you can get to knowing yourself and knowing your values, what motivates you, what inspires you, the things that you would do for free, the things that you do for free when no one's looking, that's who you are. And the closer you can inch your career to who you are as a person, the more satisfied you'll be. Happiness is not guaranteed, but satisfaction and fulfillment are much likelier outcomes of that. Beautiful. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? To get on Joe Rogan's show. Whoa. <laughs> that is exciting. That's a very, very tactical laser pointed thing. I figured I'd put it out there and hopefully, uh, you know, the magic happens. Well, you got now, you have some new fans that are all going to follow you. And by the way, the what is the best way? What is the best yeah. way for the listeners who like what they hear to learn more about you, to listen more about you? Maybe you can just tell the audience some of the best ways. Yeah, they can check out the podcast. All the links are at themcfuture.com. And if they want the newsletter, I put out periodically predictions and prescriptions. And they're, you know, in this voice. So if you're enjoying yeah. The, yeah. The, if you're enjoying this, there's more of it in writing. And that's themcfuture.com forward slash newsletter. So Perfect. I would love to, to get people to connect. Yep. And I'll put all that in the show notes. So for the listeners out there, just go to the show notes and click the links and you'll be there. All right, listeners. There you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to reduce your risk in your life by going to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and downloading that risk reduction checklist that I've made from all the people I've interviewed. See how you measure up. <laughs> so as we conclude, Steve, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status 
for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Do I get a hat? Yes, you, you, you come in the mail. Come in the mail. I want something with tassels. Yes. <laughs> any parting, no parting words? words? I've said enough. Yeah. People got the point. I guess the parting words is, do I get a hat? <laughs> yeah, those are the parting words, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's good enough. Yep. All right. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.